Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello <laughs> and welcome. I'm excited about this one because we, we have the trying to be clever edition of Slate Money. We have clever people here. We have a very clever person here. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. You knew that, didn't you? And I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. And by Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello. But much, much more fabulously, we are also joined by the one, the only, Carl Richards. You might know him from behaviorgap.com and his book, which is... The One Page Financial Plan. Which is out in all good bookstores now. Now, yeah. So go out and book it. Carl, Carl <laughs> is, is an incredibly organized person who is completely on top of his life. And in fact, he just got an email from his, a phone call from his assistant as I was introducing him. <laughs> because, Turn off the phone, Carl. In, because when he's traveling, as he is right now, he doesn't actually... You know how often he checks his email? He checks his email zero times a day. That is what I call zen. Well, no, that my assistant took. Uh, so I hired a new assistant, and assistant's not even the right word. She's like rock star, or like partner. I don't know what the right word is. And I made the mistake in day two of saying I've been trying to get away from email for ten years. Day three, I walked in, my password had been changed. Damn. And that... she wouldn't. She won't give it back to me. It's been four months. <laughs> four months. <laughs> is there any chance that there's like vital personal information that she's just like sifting off? <laughs> there is a chance we, can, we can't check the, yeah I don't know how I've tried like give me my password I need a, it it's the weekend chance, I've got to check I've got to check please give me my password and she won't 
My favorite part is that he also complains that people complain that he doesn't check his email enough. <laughs> I, I don't even know where to start. It's so good. <laughs> oh, should we just go straight to the number? <laughs> Kathy, what's your number today? <laughs> Felix, it's good to be here. Thank you. Skip to the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so thank Done. you for listening to Slate Money. <laughs> I hope you tune in next week. Um, no, we are going to talk about Carl's book. We are going to talk about talking of Zen. We're going to talk about Deepak Chopra and how we've managed to team up with Ariana Huffington and hedge fund manager Paul Tudor-Jones. You're not going to want to miss that one. And, of course, we can't not talk about Navinda Sarau, the um, man who allegedly caused the flash crash of May 2010. That's going to be pretty cool. But, Carl, as you're the special guest, you get to go first. Or rather, Kathy gets to ask you questions. Yes, I'm really happy. I read your book, Carl. Thank you for writing it. And I have a bunch of questions for you. But the first one is, why did you write it and who did you write it for? And what is it? That's a good, So which one? Should I ignore Felix? Yeah, just ignore, just ignore okay, Felix. Okay, okay, it's all, right. all about me and you, baby. All right, perfect. <laughs> so um, I kept having this repeated experience, sort of repeated meaning happening over and over and over. At the end of chatting with somebody, let's say at lunch, um, the bill would come, somebody would pay it, right? So clearly we only had a few minutes left and somebody would say, hey, Carl, knowing what I do for work, deal with personal finance. We had this conversation for an hour about something else completely. And then the last two minutes, Carl, what should I do with my, right, insert personal finance question, mm. right? What should I do with my 401k? How should I buy a house? What about mortgage rates? And I, I never had, you know, the, the problem is with two minutes, right, there's no way to answer those questions. And, and it's a terribly unsatisfactory answer to say it depends, Right. But which is always the answer yeah, in yeah. personal finance? It depends on your situation. So I thought, well, what if I just start putting those things together right. in a book? And so that's how the book started. And so the right? answer is, I can't tell you in two minutes, but if you read this book. <laughs> which is called the one page plan, which is actually 215 pages. And which requires a non-trivial <laughs> amount of work on the part of read, the reader beyond just reading the book. Right. And it's not Absolutely. just it's not just work like mathematics work like we often yeah, think about in terms dilemma. of financial planning. It's really soul searching. Lots of soul searching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How yeah. do people react to that? Yeah, so that right I wrote the last seven chapters first. Okay. Because that was the easy part. I didn't realize I was gonna do this. But I what I realized I had done was the same thing I always complain other people doing. I was writing prescriptions with no diagnosis. Right, and no ability to diagnose because I, I don't know you. I don't know about your situation. So I went back and said, God, oh, we got to give some somebody, we got to give people tools for diagnosis, right? A framework, a set of conversations so you can understand where it is. Like we spend so much time running around filling these financial prescriptions from strangers without ever getting clear about. The diagnosis. So Where I, I want to go. I feel like most of us really don't spend that much just time say that. Yeah, like, filling financial prescriptions. I've never done that. I feel like you are because you're a professional financial advisor. You have you you have a very skewed idea of how much time people spend filling financial prescriptions from strangers. Most of us just blunder through life without just doing like random stuff without even thinking about it. Well, I'm talking about the random stuff without even thinking about it. I'm not necessarily saying you spend all day doing it. I'm saying when you do something with your money, normally it's a random random blunder and it's the equivalent of a finance and i'm not talking about you specifically sorry but, <laughs> but most of us right we hear something I, I on myself in this group we hear something on tv and it's from a person who looks like they have a tie on they must be trustworthy i'll go do it right and well that brings me to my question of audience because like i'm reading this book right and about like 20% of the book is devoted to sort of getting rid of debts and another 20% is devoted to what to do with your investment money 
And I'm wondering if if there's anyone who has both serious debts and investment money, or because I feel like I'm somewhere in a blissful middle where yeah. I don't have with, debts, with no but I also don't have extra you money. Just have no money, right? I just <laughs> I live off of each month's paycheck. The, the great yeah. the great thing about having no money is you really don't have financial problems. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or am I am I wrong? Is that's... that are those two different populations? No, I mean, the, one of the goals was to apply to, uh, and I realize this is breaking a rule about getting very specific, you know, having a very specific audience, but I wanted to give people the sort of framework for making these decisions independent of where they were, mm-hmm. right? And so if debt doesn't apply to you, fine, right? But I don't know about 20%. I would argue that that point in terms of 20% is not devoted to debt. There's one chapter okay. devoted to debt. And really the goal of that chapter was to switch the paradigm a little bit in terms of how you thought about debt. But we do need to just very quickly bring in Carl's guru credentials. You wrote this celebrated piece for the New York Times Magazine about how you personally completely screwed up in terms of your personal debt. Like You are by no means infallible here. Oh, for sure. And the book's full of that. I mean, if that helps, right? <laughs> like like the, 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 the clear issue with, I think one of the biggest problems with money is we fail to recognize or at least acknowledge that it is emotional, right? There's, we, we sort of have this pretend little game we're all playing. And, and you're not supposed to talk about this, but we have this little game we're all playing that it's all about spreadsheets and numbers, right? Like the smarter you are, the better decisions you'll make. Well, the problem is it's not. I mean, there's a whole big giant piece of personal finance that's wrapped up in emotion, fears, dreams, worries, concerns, right? All the stuff you're scared about that keeps you up at night often links back to money. And so when you understand that, you realize that there's these huge, you have these huge emotional blind spots with how you treat money. I've got those blind spots too. That was actually one of my favorite parts of the book. And I I came at it from the perspective of someone who's kind of for the first time in my life actually trying to figure out how to handle money. Yeah. And I you know I'm re- I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea that you know or the saying like a lawyer who represents himself as a fool for a client. Right. And you make a similar point in a way that anybody who tries to doesn't get some outside help, some outside perspective is kind of going to make mistakes because we're not very good at analyzing our own situation necessarily or like our what objectively making decisions about the next move in the market or whatnot. I, I thought that was really useful. But I, I have a kind of backup question. The book is called The One-Page Financial Plan, and it's really kind of a, a tantalizing title. I, I was hoping you could just explain for the listeners, what is a one-page financial plan? What do you mean by that? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. That's a good That's a good question. The first, a really short story. I heard my daughter, who was 10 when I was in the middle of, well, she was nine when I was in the middle of writing this, and she was having a conversation with her nine-year-old friend and said, um, my dad's really busy. What's he doing? The friend says, oh, he's writing his next book. What's it called? My daughter says the one-page financial plan, and the friend, after like a long, painful pause, <laughs> is like, "Well, why is it taking him so long?" So, so yeah, that's clearly not. So, the idea behind the plan was: if you've ever put together a relatively complex children's toy or a relatively complex adult toy, I don't even know what an adult toy whoa, is. Whoa. So, sorry, excuse oh. me, not that's not this show. So, so Kathy uh, has a different IKEA shelving. Yeah. That's what we're discussing. So here, inside, <laughs> inside, there's right the sixty-page or fifty-page manual. Yeah, and that's really useful if you want to get it done correctly. And you should refer to it and use it. And there was a lot of thought. But what helps me the most is the picture on the front of the box. Yeah. And so the goal with a one-page plan is just a simple statement. Right, you're still going to do a bunch of other work, but why not start with a simple statement of why? So like I think mine's on page eleven, and it just says spend time with my family, and I've added service 
serving the community. Those are the two things that are why, important. Why what? To me. I'm sorry. Why what? Why you're doing all this stuff? Like, why is money important to you? Why is it, okay? Those are two different questions, though. Why is money important to you, or why are you doing all this? stuff? Sorry, all the personal finance stuff. Yeah. Why is money important? To okay, you, got right? it. What What is the purpose behind the reason you're investing or saving or spending? Mm-hmm. All of those things. Mm-hmm. Why? Right. So we ask why. The answer to that goes on the top of the one page plan. It's a statement of values to remind yourself what you said was important to you when you're thinking about doing something stupid. And then maybe just a couple. In my case, it's three, you know, things that I'm working on right now, right? And sometimes those last years, sometimes those last a couple of months. And that's why it's on a piece of paper with a Sharpie, right? You're not carving this in granite with a chisel. You know, it's going to change and you're going to be adapt and change and adapt. So, so Jordan's goal right now and Jordan's goal in two weeks' time when he's married are likely to be different. That's quite possible. Absolutely. Have you had these conversations, Jordan? I, I've had some, yeah. Although I, 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 I yesterday sent... Like, like which ones? Uh, like about what these <laughs> conversations... Money, money conversations. your fiance. Oh, yeah. I mean, just like, you know, do we eventually want to... Do we want to live? Do we want to be homeowners? Do we want kids? And so, how much are we going to have to save starting now if we want to eventually be able to pay for their educations? And how do we have to think about that? Uh, just yeah, I mean, we've you know, how are we going to? How much do we want to save for things like travel and for maybe putting down a down payment? I mean, these are all things we've had to discuss. I, I rarely say nice things about Jordan on this show, but I have to say that that on the basis of that <laughs> one of, of, of that twenty seconds of Jordan, I yeah. feel like he's going to have a pretty good marriage. I have That's a, I have a yeah. heuristic about marriage, which is that if you go into a marriage and you're explicitly agreed that you're in exactly the same place when it comes to A, money, and B, children, you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. Do you know how much debt like, do you know the like? Yeah. Do you oh, know so each other's balance sheet. Yeah, absolutely. Oh no. I mean, so my fiance is a lawyer. Um, so I and I was with her through law school. So I, we and I know all about we. I've you taught, know that I know all about. I don't want to uh, get too deep into my yeah. financial situation, but sure. Let's put income. I do I, income. <laughs> Income-based repayment and public service loan forgiveness are wonderful, wonderful programs as far as I'm concerned. Let's put it that way. Um, But yeah, no, we've gamed out like about probably 10 years of kind of what our finances have to look like because of, you know, the way her debt is structured along those lines. Wow, Um, that's impressive. But I don't, you know, yeah, it's not. It's not easy doing all that. It, it does, and that's one thing you kind of emphasize over and over again. These can be really uh, emotional conversations. That yeah, not... and that leads me to my next question. I mean, I think yeah. of like the kid conversation, much like Felix said, as something you have before you get married, or people who haven't had the kid conversation, like, do we yeah. want kids? By the time they've got married, I don't have a lot of hope for them. But some people don't do that, and then and then it becomes a financial question, and they come to you with it. So. To what extent are you actually a marriage therapist? Yeah, it's so crazy. Like I get asked, I, get asked, I mean, I get asked all the time, like by students, you know, thinking about getting in this industry, what's the best degree? And I don't know anymore, like psychology or, or marriage counseling or mm-hmm. s- something in that realm. The financing you can learn, right? And to a large degree, it's being outsourced anyway. You know, I mean, with the whole robo advice, like anything that could be crunched with a calculator, somebody else can do. This idea of interacting. So I can't tell you how often. I've been in situations with couples where a disagreement comes up and it's often, I mean, the number one one is education. Like, how are we going to educate? How are we going to pay for education? Because often there's two very different views. Like, mm-hmm. I worked my way through school and I want to pay. And, and you, I can't tell you how many times I've sat there and said, is this the first time you guys have had this discussion? So you're talking about education for their children. Yeah, education yeah. for children. Like, that's just an easy example, but yeah. there's plenty others. 
I really enjoyed the um, reference to Felix in the book. That's right. When he was talking about whether whether you should buy a house, you heard oh his tweet from, yes. uh, <laughs> from uh, Paul John Jones. Paul, Paulson. John Paulson. That's right. Yeah. He um, clearly hasn't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Not prepared. But could you go? I, it, I think I might have skipped that chapter. <laughs> well, Felix, well, you tweeted Felix um, that um, here's what John Paulson says: Buy now if you're renting. If you're if you have a house, buy, buy a, a second, second house. Yeah. Right. And you you were like, tell, tell, can you describe how you felt about yeah, that? Yeah, I remember. So I, here I am in Park City, right? We've already referenced. I moved from Las Vegas. We lost our home in Las Vegas. It's painful. We moved to to Park City with some money in a shoebox, literally, right? A bunch of debt and some cash in a shoebox. And um, we're renting a house. We've been renting for three or four years. And the market is going up. And so it feels a lot like Vegas. I mean, I don't mean to the degree that Vegas felt, but it feels the same feeling. Like, if we don't get in, it's right. going to be trouble. And then this tweet comes, right? If you don't, if you don't own a home, if you're renting, buy now. If you, if you're, if you own a home, buy a second. From, <laughs> first of all, from Felix, right? And second, from the smartest man in the world, right? Like, the, the greatest trade ever. Like, all that stuff. So you've got... And I remember feeling the sense of anxiety, like going home, like, hey, we should. And then I realized, wait, 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 wait. And that's the point in the book. Like, hey, he doesn't know me. Like, right. who is it? Like, right. first of all, I don't know if he's right. Second of all, is he right about Park City? Third of all, is it right for us? Yeah. Right? So this idea of taking outside input and just acting on it, in other words, filling prescriptions with no diagnosis, is a real challenge. And it was certainly for me. It took me a couple of weeks to sort of detox from that experience. Right. Uh, okay. So we, we have... Um, we're going to move from John Paulson to Paul Tudor Jones. That's I got confused. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because because all of these billionaire hedge fund managers do kind of segue into each other. And, and <laughs> honestly, I'm not sure I could tell the difference between them. But first, we have to talk to you about ZipRecruiter because they are a sponsor. We love our sponsors. Yes, and they're actually a really kind of cool sponsor for anyone who wants to hire people. If you say a Carl Richards and you want to hire a personal assistant because... It's better to have someone else read your email. Here, here. Then what you want is to be able to put that job ad in front of the very best people who are going to be able to do that job. And it turns out that the best way to do that is to just go to ZipRecruiter. Rather than try and find all of those different places, ZipRecruiter will find them all for you. They will post your ad wherever it will have the best effect. They're on every single message board. They can reach people who you could never normally reach. And um, it's super, super easy. It's just one post, and then within 24 hours, all of these amazing candidates just kind of fall in your lap. So 300,000 businesses have used ZipRecruiter, and um, you, too, can, should use ZipRecruiter because you can try it for free. You go to ZipRecruiter.com. Did I say free? I said free. Imagine being able to put a job ad out on the internet in front of a gazillion people for free. That's kind of awesome. Today, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. One more time, to try ZipRecruiter for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Slate Money. So, Jordan. Paul Tudor Jones. Paul Tudor Jones. Oh, I love this man so much. So, Paul Tudor Jones, a little bit of background, He's because uh, it is sometimes hard to distinguish billionaire hedge fund managers from one another. He got famous uh, in particular for predicting Black Friday back in the 80s. There's actually, he's on video, there was a documentary where he said there's going to be a crash in about 10 to 20 months. And uh, 
he was right. And he got made a lot of money off it. Anyway, he's a man. He's a you know really good capitalist with a delightful Southern drawl. And about a month ago, he gave a TED Talk where he talked about how capitalism is kind of destroying itself and how um, we need to fix capitalism. He, he, I think one of his lines was, we've ripped the humanity out of our businesses. And he started putting up charts about things like the increasing share of profits uh, or increasing profit margins at the expense of workers and labor. A lot of stuff you'd expect actually from like Paul Krugman or, or Thomas Piketty more so than, again, a hedge fund manager. Um, so he gave this talk, this almost very Occupy-ish uh, speech. And now he's seems to be sort of ish ish i <laughs> kathy is shaking her head so strongly at me so like okay like very diluted occupy like almost homeopathic occupy <laughs> finish your sentence and i will respond uh, so um homeopathic uh, occupy so there's, there's so anyway he, he has started this uh non-profit called Just Capital, J-U-S-T. Which is in all caps, even though yeah. it doesn't stand for anything. Well, I think it's like a pun, sort of like, it's Just Capital, but also Just Capital, like Justice. Anyway, so maybe not. Maybe. Should be italicized, then, yeah, not That's true. I, but <laughs> so his partner's on it, and they're, they're starting off doing some polling on things that, that Americans think are important in business ethics so, so, and whatnot. So, so. But his partners, the important part, are Ariana Huffington, uh, the founder of Tom Shoes, and Deepak Chopra. Deepak... Is, you know, spiritual guru to the stars and sometimes into quack medicine once in a blue moon. Chopra. And the wonderful thing about this is that they have come together to agree that there are certain core values that they hold, which they're going to be standing for, but they don't actually know what those core values are. <laughs> so they're going to have to do an opinion poll to find out what those core values are. I kind of feel like this is like cure capitalism with more capitalism. Okay. Well, that's why it is just capital. So wait, what, it, it, what is the capitalism in just what? What? Yeah. So how is this? I capitalism? mean, it's not like I know anything more than you guys, but I'm just like, look at these guys. What they're saying is, we've gone a little too far with the shareholder value thing and like very short term profits. So let's just like ease up a little bit and just be super capitals, capitalistic. I mean, they're not they're not saying let's let's go back to the farm and share the wealth and tax. I mean, because like Krugman and Piketty would be more like wealth tax. Well, I, I didn't hear anything about wealth tax here. I heard more like, let's, let's, let's like basically put pressure on companies to behave as pure capitalists rather than rentiers. So, so one of the things which um, you hear a lot in Davos, which is my favorite place for this kind of flavor of capitalist hypocrisy, is the idea that, um, you know, if the very rich people at the top of the pyramid just meditated more and felt better about, like, you know, wanted to do, make the world a better place, then somehow it automatically happens. And one of the things that Paul Judah Jones is actually doing here is he's basically just talking his own book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if he's um, too, like, coy about this. I think he would probably admit it if you asked him. But, you know, what he wants at this point is long-term increase in his sort of wealth and prosperity. And what he is seeing is because there's a bunch of short-termism in the market that companies are not really investing in the long term. So over the long term, it's they're not going to do as well. I, I heard people 
kind of make the same uh, the same point about Lawrence Fink from BlackRock because he also came out and said there's too much short termism in the market. The idea is that maybe their portfolio will do better over the long term if they have if those companies are just kind of growing on a steady path rather than you know responding to the whims of a few activist investors. I mean, or something. let's face it, it's a TED talk, right? Yeah. So like TED talks already. Or have to be palatable to rich people. I mean, it, it, they're never going to... I mean, I've saw a TED Talk where they're like, oh, people, rich people, we should stop you know, stealing from the poor so much because they're going to come at us with pitchforks. I mean, that's that's also <laughs> not an Occupy message. That's a, that's a message saying, for our own good, rather than for the good of all, right? Yeah. That's the, uh, the distinction I'm trying to draw. For our own good, we should do this. Wasn't that Nick Hanauer who said that specifically? I think that was yeah. Nick. Yeah, but that's him trying to package it for the... Like, he's self-aware about doing that. He's a, he's no, a, but this, but, yeah, still the TED Talk. talk. I, well, that's what I'm curious about. Do you think there's really this secret conspiracy to keep the pitchforks home versus... This idea of saying, you know what, actually, there's a disconnect. You're telling me you want, you know, more sustainability, you know, all these things. Let's find out what it is that you really care about. And then we'll rank these companies so you know, so you can then invest your money and your spending based on knowing what these companies, how these companies feel about these values you identified. I think I think the, um, the, the, the obliviousness here is I don't I don't think that he's being sort of cunning. I don't think that he's sort of saying, ha, 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 if I set up this just capital, then the pitchforks will be left at home and people <laughs> will stop protesting outside my gates, which, by the way, they do on a regular basis because he is obscenely wealthy. Um, but on the other hand, he does have the hubris of the billionaire. Um, one of my favorite Paul Tudor Jones stories was when he wanted to give a large gift to the University of Virginia, which is his alma mater. And he wanted to create this interdisciplinary center for blah, 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 whatever it was, which the University of Virginia had zero administrators and zero professors who thought that this was a good idea. Like, they all looked at this and said, this is completely stupid. And his main, Paul Tudor Jones's main advisor on this idea was his yoga instructor. And, but the fact is that if he's wandering, he's wandering into the university, waving a nine-figure check, the university is going to say, wow, Mr. J- Mr. Tudor Jones, that's an amazing idea. Thank you. We are going to say, so there is now, basically, Paul Tudor Jones's yoga instructors, interdisciplinary, whatever the fuck, it is sitting there, despite the fact that no one in the University of Virginia actually wanted this thing, because... He walked in with a check, and it's that kind of hubris which really. I I, I, I agree. I I think going back to your naivete, I don't think you're naive. I think if, I think it would be a a fantastic idea if we actually did pull the the country and had some kind of pressure to have companies respond to actual people's values. I don't think that's what this is, though. Um, I think that this is just as Felix said. This is a bunch of incredibly rich people who are benefiting directly from the system that exists, and thinking how can we. Um, slightly modify this system so that it works for us just as well or even better. And that's just how they think. It's like they would never think to, like, help the government work with food stamps, like, because that food stamp system is terrible. How do we fix that food stamp system? They just, their assumption is government doesn't work, capitalism works. How are we going to address capitalism working even better? So I I just want to push back on that a little bit. I'm a little, I'm slightly more optimistic about guys like Tudor Jones, because the whole idea of shareholder value, right? It, 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 well, this is going to sound almost silly, but it was an idea. It came out of business schools, right? I mean, it had to evolve and take hold. It wasn't something that was destined to happen. Um, it's no, not a natural law of capitalism, right? 
if we're ever going to move away from it to some degree, it, I think realistically, it's going to require people within that space to say, maybe this is not working. And so even if he's not as liberal as some of us would like, if he's not talking about government intervention, I think it's a net good if him and Lawrence Fink and other people are saying we have to think less about short term. We have to think about less about, but, you know, squeezing as many profits out of workers as possible. Uh, and so I, I do see this as a, a slightly more positive light than you do. Although I think the, the genuinely positive development, if we want to stop just laughing at billionaires and start talking about genuinely positive developments, I think the one genuinely positive development which we've seen in the past week was the IPO of Etsy. Because Etsy is a B Corp, and it is, uh, we, we will probably have a whole segment devoted to B Corps yeah. at some point. But it is explicitly saying that it is not being run for the benefit primarily of shareholders. And I think that's kind of interesting. And that now that Etsy has done that, you know, various other companies might follow suit. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, do you think that, uh, this is a kind of weird question given that it is written into their bylaws, but do you think people take that seriously when they're investing in it? I mean, do you think they really have factored that into their calculations about what it's going to do? Or We'll see. We'll see. Well, I mean, the, you yeah. mean you mean the shareholders? Yeah, the shareholders. Sure. The, sh- the shareholders can't expect Etsy to be run yeah. for, you know, primarily for their benefit any more than shareholders in Facebook or News Corp or Google, which are basically just run for the benefit of you know individuals or families, can expect that you know. But this is but in, but instead of just buying a company which you know is being run for the greater glory of Rupert Murdoch, here you're buying a company which is being run for the you know general interest of all stakeholders, and that's clearly mm-hmm. superior. Anyway, we are going to move on to Navinda Sarau. I know you've all been looking forward to this one. I'm looking forward to this one, but first. We are going to talk about Inc. Uncensored. My ex-boss, Jim Ledbetter, um, has an awesome podcast on the Panoply Network. Hi, I'm James Ledbetter, host of Inc. Uncensored, a podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurship, technology, cool companies, and everything else that hits the like buttons of my colleagues. This week, we'll be talking with Maria Aspen about... The rise of online lending and why finance is really cool now, really. And John Fine about... The pugilistic case for Take Your Kids to Work Today, literally. (laughs) And Chris Frieswick about... The 10th annual Inc. Magazine and Inc.com 30 Under 30 and why it makes me feel bad about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Plus whiskey and vaping and a genuine spit take. So subscribe to Inc. Uncensored at iTunes.com slash Panoply or Panoply.fm. So, Navinda Sarau, um, Carl, tell me what happened with Navinda Sarau, I, because I have been immersed in this story, and I kind of want to know what is the, you know, someone who's been traveling for the past week and hasn't been immersed in this story, what, what do you see this story as being about? And what is He's the, the guy that apparently, or allegedly, caused the entire flash crash um, by himself in a basement, in his pajamas, in London. Did I get most of it? Yeah, that, that, that's Possibly naked, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe it didn't even happen. Uh, yeah, and because he uses his mouse really fast. Yeah. That's what he says. He's a really fast mouser. That's, that, combine He's that with the, the fastest na- mouse that in London. And, and the naked bit. Just, oh, God. Anyway. I think we're done with this Naked mouse. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> okay, so, again, as someone, naked as someone who, who, has been, who has been like, and you're absolutely right, Navinda 
Singh Sarau is the man who was recently arrested in London on charges of spoofing, which is apparently a crime. And um, and he is now fighting extradition to the U.S. where he will be charged with criminally causing the flash crash of 2010. And for those of you who don't remember the flash crash of 2010, which is now five years ago, um, it was a kind of crazy 20 minutes when everything just imploded and everyone had no idea what was going on. And then um, the stock market plunged by about 6% in a couple of minutes and then it jumped straight back up again and it was all as if nothing had happened. And so individual stocks sometimes went down to... To like one penny. Yeah. I, had a, yeah. I had a friend who was working, he basically is at a day trading firm and he had, he made... He Accenture basically went down to like a penny and he made tons and tons and tons of cash like it would have made his year and then somehow the trade got reversed got, thanks yeah, to yeah, yeah, reversed. yeah and it I remember was, exactly where I was so it was like, I was on vacation because everything was so hectic I was on vacation sitting by a pool with my wife and I happened to see out of the corner of my eye a CNBC you know broadcast and the whole world then my phone lit up and it was crazy really crazy so um, so Carl do you believe that this guy in his parents' ba- basement in Hounslow caused the flash, flash crash? I have no idea, right? Like, I, I, I can't <laughs> imagine. Here's, here's the thing that scares me the most, is that it's even a possibility. Yeah. Right? That one guy could enter orders, these spoofing orders, with, with cancel when close. Like, that's an amazing idea to me. Like, I can enter an order with the tag... You know, like like they have tags like good till cancel or a limit order. There's an actual order tag that I can say cancel when close. Well, I think he invented that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so, all right. So, yeah. so let's let, let's start talking a little bit about what spoofing and layering are. I'm going to try and make this as short and painless as possible. But basically, what Navinder Sarau is accused of doing is, let's say that he wants to buy futures on the S&P 500. This is basically the only thing that he trades is the S&P 500. Um, and he wants to buy futures and then sell them maybe like a few seconds or a few minutes later at a tiny profit. And then he does that day in, day out, and he, that's how he makes his, his can living. I, can, one thing that'd be important, why the S&P, why S&P futures? Right? I think it's important, that, like super liquid, super liquid and tons of leverage. Right. So so this is this is a market where even if you're just sitting in your basement in your parents' basement, you can trade millions of dollars worth of futures. Um, lots of leverage, lots of liquidity, and you can make, you know, short little ticks. You make a hundred bucks here or a thousand bucks there, and before knowing it, you've got $28 million. Or, or whatever you could it also is lose that. that money. So anyway, what he wants to do, ex hypothesis, is he wants to, he, he feels that he can make, make money by just like buying at one price and then selling like one tick higher. And so he wants to go long. But what he does is he puts in a whole bunch of orders, not to buy, but rather to sell, and to sell in massive quantities. And he puts those orders in slightly above the prevailing price so that no one's going to hit him. No one's actually going to ask him to sell at those levels because there are people willing to sell at lower levels. And what happens apparently, and this is the, this is the allegation, is there's a bunch of people in the market who look at all of those sell orders and go, oh, no, look at all of these sell orders. Everyone's wanting to sell. I'd better start selling. And so they start selling, and the price comes down, and that's where our, you know, our man Navinda comes in and buys a relatively small number of contracts 
you know, cancels all of the sell orders and everyone goes, oh, it's sunny out. Suddenly all of those sell orders have gone away and we can go back to where we were and the price goes back up a tick and he makes his 500 bucks. Yeah, I I think the the really, really short version of that is just you're putting in a ton of sell orders with absolutely no intention of selling whatsoever in order to manipulate the market. And that's what he's being charged. And I also want to back up like one step. Like, why is this possibly going to work? Well, because really huge mutual funds and pension funds sometimes actually do have to sell large orders. And it's very well known that they like lose money off this because such a big order comes in. They move the market down when they're doing it and they lose money. So they're... So he was basically posing as a fake pension fund, if you want to think about it that way. That's the one thing I want to say. The other thing I want to say is that I was actually an algorithmic quant, like working in futures trading. So I know a little bit more about this. Um, not, not that much. I have like one piece of information to add, which is, you know, going back to last week when we talked about Warren Buffett and his concept of value investing. And he, so he, he sort of like dismissively talks about the true value of a stock. But people in hedge funds don't think that they understand the true value of the stock. They often just define the true value of the stock as a sort of equation depending on where the order book is. And so this kind of massive sell order would confuse those algorithms. They would actually sometimes think that the, the true value of the stock is actually lower. So this is, it is a kind of systemic confusion that this is causing. So uh, coming back to this issue of uh, the, the, the big picture issue of, of how one random dude in England uh, in his underwear can, can throw the markets in, into chaos, do we, uh, again, do yes, we... Yes, okay. Do you believe yeah, do we that believe he that? caused the flash crash? Do I believe? Yeah. Um, well, sir, the timing doesn't work, right? If you right. look at Matt Levine's um, piece on it, he he made a very good case that he might have caused some kind of panic that then caused a sort of market condition that then caused the flash crash. But it, it's not, it's certainly not fair to say that he alone caused the flash crash. And there's also this wonderful, uh, I mean, wonderful slogan, which I think Craig Perron came up with, because he did this for five years. Yeah. And, and so what Craig Perron says is that, like, you know... Um, that, that he managed to cause 250 of the last one flash crashes. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that's funny is like, you know, as somebody who's worked in this market, like it is clearly illegal to do this, this market manipulation. Um, but that doesn't mean that people don't sort of sometimes do it, especially... Well, like- I mean, okay, so this is the other thing. Like, is it clearly illegal? Because there are lots of what's known as VWAP algorithms. Basically, if I want to go out into the market and buy quite a lot of a certain stock, I'm going to use algorithms which kind of hide my intent. That's because right. if my intent is obvious, then it's going. I'm going to get front run. And part of what those algorithms do is they put in orders to sell the stock, to make it look like there's more selling interest than there is. This is something which big institutional investors do all the time. And so the idea that, my, that, that putting in orders that you don't intend to fill is clearly illegal, it's not. People do it all the time. And and when people have been charged with it, and there have been people who have been charged with it, you know, generally the fine is a slap on the wrist and a fine. And no one's, you know, trying to extradite them and throw them in jail like with Navinda Sorrell. So this seems to be massive overkill. And it and also they're saying that he caused a flash crash, which is kind of insane on its face. Um Partly because they want to be able to show massive damages so that they can then get an even higher um, you know, penalty. And it seems like the entire weight of the CFTC and the SEC and the FBI and Uncle Tom Cobley and all is coming down on this poor guy in Hounslow. And I have a lot of sympathy for him. He thought that he was trading against the high-frequency bots. 
And the only way that he is a human in his pajamas with his mouse could possibly compete on a, some kind of a level fa- playing field with the high frequency bots was to put in these big spoof orders to confuse them. Okay, look, I think you've gone too far, Felix. I mean, I agree that he's not the only person and he, it's overreach. But on the other hand, how sorry do you feel? I think the guy, I think if the uh, somebody at the CFTC, I think, told this guy to stop spoofing and he actually said, kiss my ass. Is that actually <laughs> what he said? Like the morning Pretty of the flash crash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that you're not supposed to be this obvious about it. He Like the tag you were mentioning before, Carl, where he yeah. was like, cancel when close. That is too obvious. Like I agree, yeah. though, that it happens all the time time and it's like very hard to prove intent not to actually sell at that price or or buy at the price especially if you're using the algorithm but let's go back to what they should be doing because i agree felix it's overreach but what should they be doing and how they the regulators if if they actually intend to make the system more robust to people in their underwear how how should they respond or should we well, they just I, say see, flash I, crashes happen? Do so, so my, my feeling is that people in their underwear, or at least Navinder Sorrell, there's no evidence that he caused any kind of flash crash, that the system probably was robust to him. He's been trading these things for the past five years. He's been making or losing as much money as he's been making or losing. No one knows for sure. And the market has performed perfectly liquid, liquidly and happily and no problem. Like, I think the system is robust to him. We do not need to prosecute him. He is not actually doing harm. So we don't have to do anything. Now, you know, if he's doing something illegal, if, he, if, if spoofing is illegal and he's clearly doing spoofing and that's clearly illegal, then you can find him and say stop doing that and he'll probably stop but the idea that you're gonna extradite him and slap him with criminal charges that's overkill yeah yeah i one of the interesting things about this case which is that it's come five years later um and it seemed and there's this whole subplot with a whistleblower and whatnot but you know it seems like the F- F- cftc is finally saying we're really trying to do something now we're and that's why they're making a big commotion about it. it's like we're really taking you know strong action to you know a guy in his underwear proof the markets um but it's sort of had the opposite effect in a way the fact that it has taken five years has led a lot of people to sit there going oh my god it takes <laughs> like it's taken half a decade to bring a prosecution against this one dude in a basement and, my, and, like, and eric eric that's Hunt the questions it. that's the question that i like yeah. I, that that like yeah. that's opened up this whole thing to me which is like wait is that possible yeah and if it isn't possible if he didn't cause it what did and can and have we fixed whatever it was okay, that caused so, so, it? Okay, so yeah. all right. So there's three answers which I can give very quickly. Number one, um, it's ridiculous on its face that the CFTC didn't know about this for five years. Eric Hansader of Nanex, you know, actually told the CFTC about it in yeah. October of 2010. So yeah. let's not pretend that this is coming as any great yeah. surprise. A, a company um, gave them their data. Number two, yeah. the market structure in the United States around stocks and futures is unbelievably complex and highly complex systems occasionally fail catastrophically and you can't identify a simple cause. Um, That is a problem and there are proposed possible solutions to that, but the proposed possible solutions to that are not throwing individuals in jail. They're much more systemic about market structure. Yeah, I agree. And I think it is just a really hard problem. I I, I don't think we've... We we thought after the first flash crash that we'd see many many more, and the fact that we haven't. There was one in the bond market last. A yeah, few I mean, but ago, I'm just saying but... it's not all. It's not every day. You know, it's, it's, it just doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Like if you put it, rank it with all the other big deals that's going on. In fact. All right. So so we're a little bit skeptical about this this prosecution. Um, 
Let's move on to the numbers round. And I think we should start with our guest. I think we should start with Carl Richards. I've been under so much pressure for this numbers thing. Uh, like this whole week since I've, knowing I've, I was I've been, coming. I've been I'm telling like, Carl. What is the number? And, and I, I feel like I'm punting a little bit with this number. But this is the uh, 2011 um, income inequality numbers. So you, in 2011, um, 388,000 of adjusted AGI, adjusted gross income, qualifies for the top 1%. But what's more interesting to me is $34,823. That's the top 50%, right? If you make 34000 household or individual? Uh, that is... That'd be taxpayer or unit. If yeah, it's the picketing yes, numbers. It, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's kind AGI, of in between. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So $34,824, right? You make more than 50% of your neighbors. And although that's four years old, it's pretty current because... Yeah, I couldn't find, I couldn't find, I, I, I couldn't actually find a, a more... So I have a question for you. I couldn't who, find a closer, no, a, a more recent number than that. That's the Pew Research number. You know, as, as a financial advisor, do you, do your clients have a sense of how well off they are typically? Like in the scheme of things? If it, do they under, Presumably you have clients who are making over $388,000. Yeah, it's, it's all relative. Right, that's the thing that's so interesting about these numbers to me is like it's all relative to who you're immediately surrounding. So. But I mean, the real question is, do you have any but any clients that make less than that? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Then well, three hundred eighty-eight. Yeah, yeah. What's what's the, the sort of least rich client you have? <laughs> there are plenty of people that have come for debt repayment advice that are making a lot less than three hundred eighty-eight thousand. Let's put it that way. Right. So remember this, people, and this is what the one message which I think Carl hinted at earlier, but it's really important um, when he was t- talking about how a lot of the investment stuff is now you can get just outsourced to, to robo-advisors and stuff. The reason to go to a financial advisor is not to be told to buy this and sell that and to invest in this company and that kind of thing. It's about much deeper level advice. It's about things like, how do I get out of debt? How do I achieve my goals? And if what you want is, you know, I think you should buy IBM because it's going up in value, then you can, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. Okay. Jordan. Um, my number is 644, uh, which is where a new music app known as Tidal ranked in the uh, iTunes app store uh, as of yesterday, I believe. Uh, this is the new streaming service or kind of revamped streaming service owned by Jay-Z and a gaggle of other musicians that uh, got kind of debuted with this huge, bizarre signing ceremony where everyone were like, Kanye West and Madonna came out and signed a statement about artists' rights and how they're trying to stand up for musicians and how the industry doesn't get paid enough and music is worth something and yada, yada, yada. Um, no one is downloading this app. No one cares about it. It's, it, it's becoming a pretty big failure for Jay-Z, it looks like. And I think I, I wrote something short about this, but what I since we've talked about this issue of, of new models for musicians and how they can make money, I think it illustrates uh, one particular point, which is that people do care about individual musicians, people like Amanda Palmer, who they will fund their projects on Kickstarter. But if you say support artists generally, which was the whole idea of this app, that it would somehow pay artists more per stream, no one cares. No one cares about the abstract concept of supporting artists. It's like saying they care. not many people actually care about the poor, but they will respond to stories about individual poor children. Um, and I think that's a misconception in a lot of the uh, recording industry, that saying the plight of artists is going to move people to pay a little bit more for their product my number is 
$1.4 billion. And I think the important thing here is more the dollars than the $1.4 billion. Um, and it's my favorite subject because I feel like we've gone a, ooh, almost a week, maybe even three weeks, without mentioning um, Elliot versus Argentina and the, and the crazy sovereign debt war in Argentina, which, which is a subject which will never go away. I love this subject so much. Anyway, as... I'm sure regular listeners know Argentina has been basically banned from issuing any debt in dollars. The U.S. courts have closed off all possible avenues against issuing debt in dollars, except that's exactly what Argentina did last week. It was kind of amazing. People woke up one morning and Argentina said, oh, by the way, we just sold $1.4 billion worth of dollars-nominated debt. And everyone's like, what? Now, admittedly, they needed to pay 9% on that debt, which is more than Iraq is paying on its debt. Like, it's a crazy interest rate in these in this zero interest rate environment. But they did it, and they got one over on the hedge funds who were furious. And I just love this story. Good for them. Um, my number is 20%, which is um, the stake that Google chairman Eric Schmidt now has in D.E. Shaw. It's true. Now, this is the old Lehman Brothers. Yes, it is. That's why I brought it up today. Um, I was, you know, I was working at Deisha when Lehman fell and everybody was just like 20 percent. That's 20 percent of us. Like, what's going to (laughs) happen? Well, like nothing happened until today, basically. Um, (laughs) So so basically, the Lehman estate has been shopping this stake around for the past five, six years, seven seven years, a long time. And they came close to selling it a couple of times. Lehman originally paid somewhere between $750 and $800 million for this stake. Um, By all accounts, Eric Schmidt is paying less than that. So it really wasn't a very good investment. I didn't see the actual price. But the rumor is that it's somewhere in the $500 range. And they were trying to sell it to institutions. And because it doesn't come with any kind of control, the institutions were basically not interested. So Eric Schmidt just is like, meh. I'll buy one-fifth of a hedge fund. Why the hell not? Yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. The Clippers weren't for sale. Right? Yeah, yeah, right? Like, yeah. in terms of prestige properties. Yeah, like, yeah. he's really following... He's really, really trailing Steve Ballmer here. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I own one-fifth of D-Shaw. Like, people aren't impressed by that. <laughs> no. Wouldn't it be great, though, if he showed up and pulled a Steve Ballmer at D.E. Shaw? he just, like, start doing Dance, the whole monkey boy yeah, thing, yeah, dancing? Sure. I don't think Google chairman have to, has to impress anyone um, at this point. Yeah, but, true. Kathy, how much... Yeah. I mean, just to put this in perspective, do you know how much of D.E. Shaw is owned by D.E. Shaw? I don't. That's a, It's a great question. I don't know that. But I, I also don't think he needs to worry about money. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's true. Um, so... The plight of the rich, you know, we're going to feel sorry for, you know, we don't feel sorry for David Shaw, Eric Schmidt, Paul Tudor Jones, John Paulson, or any of these other, you know, billionaires. We, we, or even the people who come to um, Carl, you know, worried about their $388,000 annual incomes and and saying, oh no, how am I going to educate my kids? But this is, this happens, right? Of course. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. everyone worries about too. money. Everyone worries about money, even Paul Tudor Jones. Um, thank you for listening to Slate Money. And do please subscribe if you like the show. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And leave a review as well if you like it. Um, do also continue to write us. We love your letters. Slate Money at slate.com. And thank you very much to the one and only Stan Alcorn, who produced this week. Also to Joel Meyer, the managing producer, and Andy Bowers, the executive producer. And 
the whole Panoply network, which can be found at iTunes.com slash Panoply. So we'll talk to you next week when um, Jordan is going to be getting married. So we'll have another special guest to take his place on Slate Money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.